Good morning, church. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to do the Bible reading from Colossians chapter 4, verses from 2 to 6. And any of you do not have a Bible, there are some Bibles at the back. You can take one and keep it with yourself to read every day. Colossians chapter 4, verses from 2. Further instructions, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Here ends the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, keep your Bibles there open in front of you. Um, as we, we're in our second last sermon in the book of Colossians. And we're drawing to an end. And today is a bit more of a practical passage um, as we've had big doctrines about who Jesus is and who we are in Him. And today we're sort of starting to hit the ground of what it means in everyday life. So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we open up your word, Lord, have our hearts ready to hear what we need to hear. Soften our hearts. Capture them. So that, Father, as we leave, leave this place today... We will live honouring the name of Jesus in all that we do and all that we say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we live as we seek to impact and reach people who desperately need to know Jesus? Or are you, set, or are you settling for... A form of Christianity that is lacking in its impact and reach. How are we to live as we seek to know that there's a world filled with people who do not yet know Jesus? Now, I think there's two extremes often in how we, there's often two extremes in how we react to how we are meant to live as Christians in this world. And there's two ways. There's the pendulum swing. We'll either go the way to in, the way for us to live as Christians is we'll swerve the pendulum to far one side where we separate ourselves from the outsider. We separate ourselves from community. And basically what we're meant to do is we're meant to be set apart. We're meant to be off to the edge of culture. And we'll just sort of keep to ourselves in our little huddle so that we're not influenced, affected, or have any engagement with the world around us. Now, that's one way we often swing the pendulum of how we're going to have impact. It's basically, we need to separate ourselves completely and have nothing to do with the world. But then there can be the other um, way that we swing the pendulum. And that, that way is where we go to, well, I'm free in Jesus. I'm redeemed. I'm saved. And therefore, with culture and society, I can engage however I like in any form. And I can just be full on in and engage culture do what culture does because I'm free and forgiven and therefore your life really doesn't look anything different to the world around you except that you love and follow Jesus. 
They're often two extremes. But today, what I want us to do is let the gospel center us in how we are to live as we seek to impact and reach people who desperately need Jesus. See, the, the, the gospel, it's gone to this city of Colossae in the first century. This letter's probably written around 60 AD. Paul's in chains. He's writing to this city that's actually very similar to to Sydney, New South Wales. It was a city that was well connected. Now, they didn't have Wi-Fi and internet, but they were well connected because of the Roman, Roman roads. The Colossae and Corinth and cities like that, they were a place of activity, they were a place of culture, it was a place of many religions, many expressions, many philosophies and much knowledge. And what you would do as you live in these cities is you would take a bit of everything and you'd form your own way of living. And Paul's writes to this church who's been saved by the gospel, the church has been planted, and he writes to encourage this church as they understand how it is to live life now with Jesus as number one, he writes to them to help them see that just as you receive Jesus, you continue to walk in him. Because false teachers, because it was a, it was a hive of road activity at Colossae, false teachers have come in, it appears, and they're starting to go, it's Jesus plus something. Starting to come in and say to the church, oh yeah, yeah you've received Jesus, but no, 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 to stay in Jesus or to have more life, you need to do these rituals and religion. That if you want to have the better experience religious life, well, you need to have these super spiritual experiences, which you aren't having, but we're having. You need to have this kind of meditation or form of religion that we have because it appears that you're lacking as Christians. It's Jesus plus something else. And Paul writes to that to show, no, 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 no. Just as you receive Jesus, you keep walking in him. Not only do you receive forgiveness and redemption in Jesus, but he also provides the same power for you to continue walking in Jesus. It's not like you're saved and you say goodbye and now you live under your own strength. No, no, no. As Christians, we continue to walk in the strength of Jesus. We never move on from Jesus. And that's why Paul writes about the sufficiency of Jesus. So the book of Colossians makes one universal truth. Jesus is number one. See, it's not you make Jesus number one. Have you heard that expression? I make, I've made Jesus number one. No, no, you don't. Jesus already is number one. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus still is number one. There's one universal reality. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn all over creation. Through him and by him, all things. We... So, so what Paul is doing is clarifying that there's one universal reality. At the same time, though, He's very clear there is the dominion of darkness and there's a kingdom of Jesus. Therefore, there are people who are in the kingdom and there's people who are outside the kingdom. And today, this passage really is going to help us know how do we live as we seek to impact and reach people who are outsiders, who are not in Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so thankful that you're here. And you might go, oh, but that sounds exclusive language. You know, we live in Australia, everything's meant to be inclusive. Well, really, as much as we try to be as inclusive as we can be, eventually you will become exclusive. And here's the beautiful message of the good news, though. See, the, the beauty and the wonder of the good news for you today is that, no, no, Jesus is number one, and that he can restore you to God. 
See, Christianity isn't about what you do. It's not about religion. It's not about you doing things to receive something from God. No, the gospel is a message of over 2,000 years ago. The Son of God died on a cross in your place. He was buried. He was raised from the grave. And he can restore you. That's the good news. By faith. Nothing you have done will bring you into the kingdom of God. It's what Christ has done for you. And so if that's for you today, we'd love you to take hold of Jesus. And so as we learn, as you become a Christian or as you've been a Christian for 20 years, how are we to engage? How are we to live our lives as we want to see people know Christ? Well, there's three things for us this morning from this passage. And the first one is, how do we live? We pray consistently. Look at verse 2. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, that, that word prayer, it's, it's a command. He's actually saying, pray. How do you feel when you hear that? When, when the preacher gets up and they talk about prayer? How do you feel when, you, when you, you, you have someone say, hey, we need to pray? I often feel guilty. I feel like a bit, like I, I don't do enough of it. I look back over the last week and I think, oh, man, I could have prayed here, but I let, let that go. And often we can feel guilt and shame. But that's not what Paul's doing. He's, he's, not, he's not writing this to make us feel guilty or ashamed. He, he's actually saying this in the light that we've been set free. Right? In, in the light of chapter 3 of verses 1 to 4. Right? Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, set your minds on things above. Right? You've died, your life's now been hidden in Christ, and when Christ appears, you will appear with him. See, what Paul's doing is he's saying, in light of the freedom and the fullness you have in Jesus, pray. You don't have to feel guilty or shameful about it, but it's just you devote yourself to prayer. We get to pray. And as you feel, maybe as you feel the pressure of society, or maybe as you worry about the, the political agendas or the ideology. Maybe you wonder, how on earth will people hear about Jesus? We're not to hang our head in the sand and go, woe is me. No, we, we, we lift our eyes up and we pray. We pray, because we're, we pray because we're meant to be watchful. Why do we do it? Well, it keeps us watchful and thankful. The idea of watchful there, I don't think is... The idea of you praying and then watching and seeing God answer that prayer. Now, that's a good thing to do, right? To write down and record what you've prayed and seeing God answer. But I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying being watchful in the sense of be watchful in the time that you live. You know, like a guard? A guard goes on watch from, say, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. His duty or her duty in that moment is to be on guard, to watch. And what Paul's saying here is, remember chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, be watchful of this because you're in this time. And therefore be thankful. Don't worry about the, the century that you live in. You're in the, you're in the now, not yet. You, you're between the time Christ ascended and the time Christ will return. And therefore, be watchful of this. And so pray and pray with thanksgiving. We're to be motivated to pray by thanksgiving. Every day is a celebration. Every day is a day of gratitude. Every day is a day of thanksgiving because Christ is alive. Therefore, you are alive. 
You know, Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's number one. There's no question about it. He's shown and he is shown from the cross. Something was so horrific and shameful. He's shown from the cross that he has disarmed all authorities and powers. And therefore, we can devote ourselves to prayer, to give thanks. And I think it helps us. See, praying gives you perspective of the mundaneness of life and the time that we live in. It it lifts our eyes from the things around us and our worries, and it takes us to the throne room of God. And this is what I love about this passage, because I reckon Paul's got that kind of perspective because he prays. What I love about this passage is that, that Paul, from all outlooks from our culture, looks like there's no hope left for him because he's in chains. He doesn't ask that the door will be opened for him in his chains so that the jail door will be open. No, no, did you notice what he prays for? And I'm sure the church of Colossae is praying for him that they'll be freed. But he doesn't ask them to pray for him to remove him from his situation. No, no, he prays that the door will be open for the message. Not, not an easy route. Not the most easiest way. No, no, what he's saying is, I want the opportunity for the gospel to be open to. I want to see people's lives transformed. God, bring people whose hearts are ready to hear the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Whether I'm surrounded in prison by a guard jail who's different every day, or whether I become before Nero, the emperor of Rome, or whether I'm just before your average day person on the street, I pray that those people will be open to the message of the gospel. Pray that I can share it in this hour. Be watchful. It's a time for this. He's asking the church to pray that I will make it clear. Did you, he's praying, can, you, can I make much of Jesus? Pray that this mystery of Jesus will be clear. What's the mystery? Jesus. It's not an end time event. The mystery is the person of Jesus. And he said, can I make that clear? Pray that I'll be articulate. Pray that I'll have clarity and I'll understand. See, it sort of, it sort of throws a bit of a, even later on, it throws that, that idea of, you know, when we say, I've got the Holy Spirit, so I'll, that's my preparation and that's all I'll speak. Now, Paul, Paul's actually, no, no, what we see, Paul's someone who prepares himself. He seeks clarity of his message. He wants to be clear in what he says so that he can reach people. Because he knows of the time he's in. See, no matter what empire we live in, what political regime we live under, no matter what ideology that comes and goes every 10 years or every 20 years in the city that we live in, no matter what that is, he's saying, lift your eyes, pray, because no matter how dark it gets, the gospel is brighter. Pray that God will make ways for the gospel to enter people's hearts. And so how do we live? How do we live? It's, firstly, he just says pray. Pray consistently with what? Thanksgiving. But secondly, what, what it stands out here is that he also says to live radically. We're to live radically with what? How are we to live radically? We're to live radically with kingdom values. That's the value of Jesus. The kingdom values of Jesus he's asking us to live. See, in the context, since you've been raised with Christ, Christ is the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's on his throne, you've been brought into his kingdom, 
There's the, the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of light. We're in this kingdom. And so to be wise and to act accordingly is to walk in the kingdom. It's to walk Jesus's way. To have him shape how we walk. In 1885, C.T. Studd headed to China as a missionary to join Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary for the rest of his life in China, India, and Africa. And he said this, he said, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so I think that's actually a bit, basically what's being said in verse 5. Be wise, look at verse 5, in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. See, the current cultural narrative is be true to yourself. Be true to your desires and your values. Be true to who you are and go seeking that. For us, though, we're to live totally to radical lives by going, no, we're going to be true to Jesus and his values and his ethics of his kingdom. But as we do that, are we meant to then build a fortress around our lives? Are we meant to, to, to bubble wrap ourselves so that the world is not let in? Are we to separate ourselves off from the outsider? No, verse 5, no, 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 you just be wise in how you act towards them, which means Paul expects that you're going to rub shoulders. He expects that you're going to encounter. He expects that all these things are going to happen where you will encounter those who do not yet know Jesus. And so look how we are to live. Be wise in the way you act. Don't separate yourself, but rather expect. Now, do you notice it's to act wisely? Maybe for you, or maybe some of you don't care about being wise. You just care about being right. Sometimes we can be so black and white with knowledge that it's shown through the way that we speak and we act that it reveals that you actually don't have wisdom. Sometimes you can come across so abrupt, uncaring, and you really don't care how it affects others, and it can appear standoffish Like it's, It just appears like you're, you're standing off because you've always got to be right and you're black and white. You can know it here, but that's the beauty of the Bible, right? That's why we've got so much wisdom literature in the Bible. Because we've actually got to learn how to use what we've been given with wisdom. See, wisdom is what you do with that knowledge. Wisdom is applying that knowledge in how you live and how you're going to behave. See, it's that, it's that intermediate state between your knowledge of your mind and your actions and your voices. And so we be wise. Be wise in how we act. And where do we get that wisdom from? Chapter 2. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So therefore, walk in Jesus. Walk his way, his value. If you want to know how to walk with wisdom, look how Jesus did it. Or look at chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3. Put to death. How do we live with wisdom? We put to death sexual immorality, greed, and all those things. And don't hear me wrong for a moment. Especially in our current cultural moment of sexuality and gender... We can be well known for sharing the beauty and the wonder of what marriage and sex is by God's creation. But at the same time, as much as we stand for that, the outsider sees that we're riddled with greed. 
Do you see how the message is mixed? See, he's like, how do we, we, we act wisely in how we live out Jesus? We put to death, we, we, we put on the, we don't lie anymore, we put on, get rid of anger and rage and malice. Then verses 12, like, as you treat each other in the church, therefore, why don't you do that with the outsider as well? Show compassion and patience, bear with one another. You've been put here in this city, in this suburb, in this place in history to be wise as you act towards outsiders. To be wise in how we steward our time, knowing the preciousness of time and the brief moment that we have in history. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us, Lord, to number our days. Why? So that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we have an eternal perspective. We pray, God, help us grasp this short life. Help us be watchful. Give us the right priorities. Because, see, the new life we have in Christ shapes our new priorities. He gives us new life, new priorities, and and a new way of living. And so I want to ask the question, are you living that kind of wisdom and conviction? Do your actions show that you're living for the kingdom or does it show you that you're living for the worldly kingdom? You know, last Sunday we we had a great AGM where we gathered as a church to look where God's leading us. And, And, you know, we talk about many things. But obviously one of those things we always talk about is a budget. And see, when it comes to our money, we can either think about money from a worldly perspective or we can think it from a Jesus kingdom perspective. We made a big step. We made a big choice, a step of faith. And so whether it's a church budget or whether it's a personal budget, does that reflect safety and security? Or does it reflect a budget that knows the realities of heaven and hell? Do we give in safety and security or do we give with generosity, knowing the urgency of the need for the gospel to go out? Because see, we, we can't take our nice new European car or our new lap pool, or our house. we can't take that with us. And so I suppose I wondered, do your work colleagues, those you mix with, you rub with, whether it's on a sporting field, whether it's a, at a, it, whether it's a night out at the movie, do they recognise that there's something different about you in, the, in your eternal perspective of what you're living for and what you're not living for? A world's perspective, or are they seeing that there's something different about how Jesus has shaped your view of this world? There was a, there was a day last week um, when I walked through the front door. It was late in the afternoon. I got home from the office. I was tired, exhausted, and I walked through the door. And you, and you can imagine this scene. I walked through the door, and every single member of the McCleary household my sons and my wife, they were all on devices, right? Laptop, phone, iPad, in the master bedroom, laid out. And I'm like, hey, everyone, how's it going? How was your day at school? Oh, hey, Dad. Oh, yeah. And then then back to what they were doing. Every single one of them. Why did I get that reaction? I got that reaction because time is short. Time was in short supply for them, right? It was the final day of Black Friday sales. (laughs) 
And so every member was a bargain hunter looking for a bargain, knowing they've only got a few hours left and they went out to buy as much stuff as they could at a bargain price. To snap it up, to get hold of it. And that's what Paul's actually saying, I think, here in verse 5. When you make the most of every opportunity, in the Greek, it's the idea of buy back, it's to redeem. It's that idea of the bargain hunter who knows that the time is short and I'm going to get on with what I'm meant to be doing. It's to recognise that we have a limited season. It's to recognise that we're in this moment in history. So be wise in how you act towards them. Act wisely. Live radically. Live with intentionality and purposefulness in how you engage. Don't walk away, but walk too. How do you use your time that you've been given? Live wisely. Okay, so how do, we, how do we live as we seek to see people who are outsiders become insiders, to see them go from darkness to light? Well, well here Paul says, pray consistently. How do we live in a world where there's outside? It's live radically, like let Jesus' values shape how you live. And then thirdly, he says, right, speak graciously. We're to speak graciously. And when are we to speak Graciously. What, what, what conversations are we meant to speak graciously with outsiders? Look at verse 6. Let your conversation be always, all the time. All the time we're to speak graciously to the outsider. Now, what verse 6 is saying, it's not a gospel conversation. Now, that may include that, but primarily he's not talking about you going out and sharing Jesus. It's going on in all your interactions. It's just be gracious all the time with your speech. What comes out of your mouth in everyday life? Let it be seasoned with salt. Now, that's not, I don't think this is salt that preserves, but it's salt that enhances. It flavors. Now, I, batch, I was a bachelor for a few years, and so for a few of those years, my food and my cooking was pretty bland. And I remember this night when my best mate came over. I think we might have been working on the boat or doing something. And I said to him, like he lived at home with his mum. And I said, why don't you stay for dinner? He was a bit apprehensive, but he said, yeah, no, okay. And so I cooked him dinner. I, boiled, I learned how, get this, I learned how to boil rice in a saucepan. And I learned how to boil vegetables. So I did the two and I put it all together. That's it. And we're sitting there watching, um, I think I had, I had Ozstar at the time. It was probably the country music channel, probably. And we sat there and... And I could see the look on his face. Like, it was bad. It was bland. It was boring. It was average. He just ate it because he had to eat it. But it was just really like, Ugh. But then I met Ali. And she spiced my life. <laughs> you know, no longer, you know, the only spice we had was KFC before that, the other 14 spices. But, but I met Ali and food no longer was bland and boring. Before this, I just thought salt and pepper were just things to make the table look good, not to make the food taste better. But once I met Ali, food tasted better. It was more interesting. It was more exciting. It wasn't bland, but it was something that I wanted to go back to for more. And here, Paul's saying to us, hey, like, let your conversation be gracious and flavoured, flavoured with grace, flavoured with God, flavoured with with Christ, flavoured with being interesting, not bland. 
Don't be a boring Christian in a way that we speak. We're to speak in a way that people are interested in us. And why do I think that the, the reason for the salt is enhancement, not preservation? Because the rest of the verse tells us, here's the purpose, so that people may ask you a question about how you live. Why would you act wisely? So that people will ask questions. Leads people to think, you know, Bob, I, I, I've, I've noticed you go to church. Why do you do that on a Sunday? Susan, I, I've noticed that you've been going through chemo treatment. Now, I know you're anxious, but, but when I went through it, I was distraught. What's different? Johnny, why do you give so much money? Why do you plan to give 10% to the church? You know, they're the questions that people may ask. Do you ever feel guilty that you're not a Billy Graham? Do you feel like sometimes I wish I was, you know, I'm not like that person who preaches on a street corner? Or when you're there in the mechanic shop and you're talking to your mechanic and he said, oh, what did you do yesterday? And you was at church, but then you wish you could have gone for the, you know, the, the, the gospel moment. Now, they're all good things to a spot. They're good things for us to do. But I want you to notice something here in this passage is that Paul, he asked to have direct evangelism. But what does he ask of the church? More he asks for more responsive evangelism. See, it's good to have evangelists, people who are gifted. It's good to be direct evangelists. But at the same time here, he's actually saying, hey, be people who are just ready to respond. That your life stands out, that they ask you questions. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 3, live such good lives, respect and honour, that the people around you will ask questions of you. And so be prepared to give an answer. Like, it's responsiveness here. You know, be direct if you have those opportunities. But at the same time, it's okay to have someone ask you a question and be responsive to it. And so here's the question, though. If your neighbour has never seen you, or if they've never seen how you speak or how you act, how will they ever ask a question about you? How will they ever do that? Because... If they haven't seen you or acting or see your values, and how can they ever ask a question of you? Now, as we speak with grace, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we drop truth, right? See, grace and truth go together. But it means that as we bring truth, we're wise in how we do it, but we're gracious by the message we bring because the medium by which we bring the message confirms the message that we display. So... Marshall McLunar, he was an incredible Canadian who was smart and he penned this phrase. The medium is the message. The medium is the message. So basically what, he, what he's saying is, is that the medium by which we choose to communicate a message holds as much, if not more, value than the message itself. Do you see what he's saying? So here's, a, here's an extreme example that I got this week. The medium is the mess, you know, you've got an atomic bomb and you strap to the side of it, Jesus loves you, and you, you put it upon a village. Do you, do you say, like, you've got an atomic bomb that's got, oh, Jesus loves you, but the way in which the message is delivered is... See, so, so it's actually, it, there's a medium by which we need to be wise in our speaking and our grace and in how we engage one another. Sadly, sometimes the tones and the spirit in which how we say and do things makes the message that we bring void. 
Sadly, sometimes the tones of the sarcasm that we use about people living in darkness, like, you know, those people are going to hell, those kind of things, like that sarcasm, it, it really just reveals their own arrogance and pride, thinking that we've got there through our own merit. And sadly, sometimes it means the message is just, is, where is it? But we're reminded that we're a beggar showing other beggars where they can find the bread of life. We're to be gracious, seasoned. Now, some of you are introverts, others are extroverts. Now, we, we've all got different personalities, and that's a good thing. God's made us for personalities. But it does mean that if you're an introvert here today, sometimes you can hide behind your introvertedness and go, I'm not going to put effort into communicating with people because it's just easier if I don't. No, no, no. Actually, Paul's saying, like, Think about how you will engage people and have conversations. Don't pull yourself away. No, no, make effort to go, I actually should think about my language. Now, the extrovert, though, on the other hand, if you're an extrovert, like it's probably telling you that you just need to be quiet because your neighbour can never ask you a question because you just talk all the time. So, it's, you know, if someone wants to ask you a question, you've got to listen well. You know, even our emotional intelligence, you know, our body language, your body language can kill a conversation or keep it going. And so some of us have really good emotional intelligence, others of us have no idea that, that as we walk past, we're giving off very bad vibes just from our body language. And so I think in a way that we're just going to make effort in this area to realize that our body language and our words say something. And pray that God will help you with that. So to be, an inter- to be interesting, you need to be interested in them. For people to ask questions of you, you need to first ask questions of them. You need to show genuine interest in their lives and ask genuine questions about them and what they like and what they dislike. And you'd be surprised what comes from that conversation. Because we want to be people who speak graciously all the time. To be people who, who live wisely, live radical lives with the kingdom values, but to be people who want to pray as well. And so how do we in this world as we want people to know Jesus, to have an impact and see people come to know Jesus, well, we speak graciously, we live radically and we pray consistently because we live in a world that desperately needs the hope and the fullness of life that Christ has, that we have already. And so I love, like, as I thought about this sermon, I picture Jesus doing this, just wisely acting, graciously speaking. You know, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, like Jesus goes out of his way to engage the outsider. He actually goes out of his way to go to Samaria and engage this woman who, who's been married five times and to engage her in grace. And then, then in, in John chapter 8, you have these, these religious leaders, the ones who think they're the insider and everyone else is the outsider. They think they're the ones who are the almighty, holy ones, the the law-obeying citizens, and they want to trick Jesus. And so they bring a woman who's committed adultery, and they bring her before Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, she's committed adultery. The law of Moses says she must be stoned to death. And Jesus says, he puts the line, he says, whoever is without sin, be the first one to cast the stone. And they all just leave. And the one who was perfect and righteous and who who had the right to condemn Jesus himself didn't, but he went to the cross for that woman. So the way we live and act, the way we speak and react, is a medium by which we bring the beauty, 
the wonder, the majesty and the glory of Jesus. That's how we live in the name of Christ. It's the way in which we speak of the fullness of life that we have. Why? Because you too were once the outsider. You too once the outsider who's been made the insider by the grace of Jesus. And someone would have prayed for you. Someone would have lived radically for you. And someone would have spoke graciously to you in love and grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize the, the real reality that Jesus is the, the number one. And so that means that there are people living in darkness. And so, Father, we yearn to see them find the hope that we have. So, Father, help us, we pray as a church, to know how it is for us to live out our lives in a very complex world as we seek to bring you glory. Amen.